0: Hello, falava. this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. E kine. As campaigning gets underway for New Zealand elections, Pacific health workers
1: are exhausted. Also, Pacific and Māori continue to grapple with the trauma, pain and hurt.
0: Families affected by the dawn raids find healing through storytelling. And later,
1: This is an industry that we are looking at to help diversify our economy, but also to build economic resilience.
0: Deep sea mining is seen as a great opportunity for the Cook Islands. Frontline Pacific healthcare providers are disappointed at a lack of political action to address a health system failing Pacific communities. GPs and primary care nurses say they're exhausted. And with COVID 19 teaching us a one size fits all approach doesn't work, those on the frontline are yet to see anything from the election campaign to address that. Election 2023 Pacific Issues reporter Lydia Lewis filed this report.
2: The chair of the Pacific GP Network, Dr Api Salome Talemaitonga, warns people have died in Aotearoa and in the Pacific because of an underfunded health system in New Zealand.
3: We exported that deadly disease to Samoa, resulting in the deaths. We can't let that happen again.
2: He's talking about the 2020 Samoa measles outbreak, which he says hasn't been learnt from. Dr Marion Heather agrees. She was on the front line in Samoa at the time. We lost, what, 83 kids? Uh, avoidable, unnecessary, and it shouldn't have happened, but you know that we are basically the gateway to the Pacific. We've got a responsibility to do what we can in terms of vaccination in whatever way, if it's COVID, if it's measles, if it's whooping cough. The first cases of COVID-19 in the Cook Islands were from New Zealand. In Niue, it was the same story. Here in Aotearoa, 263 Pacifica have died from COVID-19, the second highest group after Māori. I asked Dr Api if New Zealand had learnt from these experiences.
3: It seems like we haven't because we're saying we need to lift the immunisation rates. Well, how? By funding general practice properly, and I'm sorry to be harping on about that, but I'm really clear the exhausted GPs and primary care nurses need to be funded well and supported well to do that.
2: A Barsivica GP who owns a clinic in Northland Dr. Aniva Lawrence says there's a great need for community-led solutions to be funded because at the moment...
1: The workforce is feeling that pressure.
2: It's a pressure mirrored in the communities she serves in.
1: Our health statistics speak for their own... Our mortality rates are so much higher than non-Pacific. And Pacifica have been failed over many years in this space.
2: Dr RP says it's vital New Zealanders are healthy, both for themselves and for the lives of those a hop, skip and a jump across the Pacific.
3: Don't just wish for it to happen, actually put your money where your mouth is.
2: He says grand, sweeping political statements and ideas
1: cost of living, health, education, transport, wage growth, youth offending,
2: is simply not enough this election. He says whoever's in government after October 14 has a responsibility to make the system more equitable. If not, it could have dire consequences for people not just in New Zealand, but also across the Pacific.
0: Dozens of untold dawn raid stories are being shared across New Zealand. The Ministry for Pacific Peoples has spent the past two months in Auckland, Waikato, Wellington and Christchurch, encouraging Pacific families to come forward and share their experiences, many for the first time. Now the community in Dunedin have the opportunity to do the same this Saturday at Pacific Trust Otago. The raids were enforced in 1973 by Prime Minister Norman Kirk's Labour Government, and an official dawn raids apology was delivered in 2021 under Jacinda Ardern. Alicia Foon spoke with Secretary for the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, Geraldine Clifford-Lidston, who says it's about documenting history and providing a safe environment for generational healing.
1: Well, I think, look, it's been five decades since the dawn raid policies in the 1970s, and Pacific and Māori continue to grapple with the trauma, pain and hurt that was inflicted during that period, Um, it's still a deeply traumatic memory for a lot of our ainga and families. And often, um, you know, what we know about trauma is that um, it can mask itself through learned beliefs, behaviours, patterns, which can become really ingrained in families so um, this is really important for the healing process for our communities and for those stories to be shared.
4: I went along on the weekend to the Christchurch storytelling event and it was um, really heartening to see and hear about the support like researchers and clinicians working to create a safe place and environment for people to tell their stories and some warm food as well at the end
1: of the process.
4: Mm. So what has the reception been like? Tell me about how many people have come through to share their stories.
1: Well, you know, um, we've had uh, about 90 visitors, just under 90 visitors, and so far we've collected about 26 uh, stories. I guess um, with things like trauma, um And and the sharing of stories, often for Pacific, this is a very sacred um, space because traditionally, you know, we tend to um, keep that as oral tradition. Um, But what we know is that, you know, I guess it's that age-old adage of history is written by victors. And if we don't record our stories, then the journey of success can't accurately be captured And we've had many people come through who um, have told these stories, but we've also had others that have come and then thought, oh, I might need a bit more space and want to do this. Um, in a different environment. So um, working through that with communities is also part of this journey.
4: Many communities are calling for an amnesty. Still hasn't happened yet.
1: Yes, well, um, you raise um, many, many good points there. If I just go back to, um, if we look at like the Polynesian Panthers who were really active um, activists during the time of the Dawn Raids, Um, those very important people in our history are now in their 60s and 70s. My mother, who was also um, living in New Zealand at that time, she's now in her 80s. Um, So capturing those stories are really, really important for our future generations. And I read somewhere that um, history waits quietly for someone to discover it. And I think this is a really important thing, that if we don't collect it then it won't be there for those future generations in relation to the amnesty well we're in a very dynamic political environment at the moment so i can't really comment on where that might land but um, suffice to say that i know that there is a large part of our community that are waiting to hear about what um, decisions might be made if any
4: so i understand that you're working with the ministry of culture and heritage Uh, what will come from this? What do you hope to do with these collection of 26 stories and and more?
1: When the um, Dawn Raids announcement of the formal apology was made, there were basically four key initiatives that were announced as part of that um, apology. The first was uh, a community fund to enable um, individuals and community groups to tell these stories through the Dawn Raids, and that's part of what we're doing here. And then there was also Dawn Raids historical accounts. Those two parts sit with the ministry and we're organising that. The other two components was a contestable fund for Pacific artists and historians, and that sits with the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And the other is a Dawn Raids online platform, and this is a public platform and online repository where... Um, important histories and information critical for cultural identity will be placed. And again, as I mentioned, that sits with the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, and we will work closely with them to make sure that those um, things are undertaken.
4: And naturally, I I have to ask, since communities, uh, they're asking me about what the future looks like, uh, especially seeing the rhetoric around ACT wanting to abolish the Ministry of Pacific Peoples due to excessive spending.
1: Oh, look, um, I think increasingly we are moving to an evidence-based and um, data-based decision-making models. And... um, Um, while we've had many, many successes uh, for our Pacific community in terms of leadership across a really broad range of sectors now. You know, we're coming to the foreign in health, in terms of our health workforce, um, you know, where you're seeing Pacific people represented um, uh, in such a broad range of workplaces, so so these are wonderful successes for our, for our country. But unfortunately, we still feature really highly in places that um, we need to make improvements. Um, and so I, I think given that we have increasingly more data and evidence-based society, um, there is still need there for our communities to um, get support. And I would hope that this is still seen as important.
4: What would you have to say in response to the excessive spending?
1: Oh, look, um, I will respond at some point, but I don't think that this is the time and place um, to do that.
4: When would MPP be in a position to respond to comments from Acton National?
1: I think if you just keep in contact with my team, I will um, make a decision in, some, in the future.
4: Is there a reason why you haven't addressed it?
1: Uh, no, I don't think that there's anything you know too much to address. I think um, focusing on um, making sure that we do the work right and um, continue to serve our communities.
4: But you back the spending, and it was justified. I'm
1: not prepared to comment on that.
4: Deep
0: sea mining companies on the Cook Islands have been exploring the country's ocean to see if they can extract potato-sized nodules packed full of minerals miles below the surface. After the exploration phase, companies will be able to mine if they can prove it can be done in an environmentally acceptable way. Caleb Fotheringham has the story.
5: Moana Minerals Limited is one of three companies that were awarded a five-year exploration licence in the Cook Islands. The licence allows the companies to explore the deep sea in the country's exclusive economic zone. They've been trying to find out if removing the nodules can be done without causing serious harm the measure they need to satisfy to mine. Moana Minerals Limited CEO Hans Schmidt is fairly confident his company will get the green light, provided they are assessed on science and not emotion. We believe that the ability to mitigate against serious harm, which is the measure that we have to satisfy, based on the knowledge and the understanding we have of these other industries that are existing, we can make a case that it can be done. Moana Minerals has started exploring this year and has carried out three expeditions. The actual mining is still years away. If it happens, companies will be required to pay a 3% royalty on every tonne of material that is extracted. Mr. Smith says the Cook Islands will benefit from tax and jobs created. You end up with an industry that develops around the Cooks which creates skilled jobs that Cook Islanders can fulfill. So there's a great opportunity rather than kids of today leaving the Cook Islands to go to New Zealand, Australia or elsewhere to go and pursue careers can actually pursue those careers here on the Cook Islands and still experience the Cook Islands lifestyle. Speaking about a month ago at the University of the South Pacific in Suva, Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown told the audience COVID-19 had made his tourist-dependent country deprived of income. He sees deep-sea mining as a way to strengthen the economy.
1: This is an industry that we are looking at to help diversify our economy, but also to build economic resilience that we talk about.
5: Calvin Passfield, technical director at the environment charity to Ipukaria Society, says he has no issue with the exploration phase on its own, and says useful research has come out of it. But he is concerned about the reason it's happening.
1: It's all about just informing them to start commercial mining. That's the activity that concerns us much more than the exploration.
5: Companies are required to walk away if they find mining will create too much environmental damage. But Mr Passfield is worried about the bias in the decision-making process with companies doing their own environmental research.
1: The question is, you know, what's the threshold for that level of too much damage? Who decides on what's going to be too much damage The companies are doing the research to decide this and yet they've got a vested interest in getting the permission to mine so you can be quite sure that their research will not show that the damage will be too great.
5: Mr. Smith says investors from Moana Minerals are prepared to walk away if deep-sea mining causes ecological destruction.
0: The Marshall Islands has been hosting an international scientific expedition whose findings will also help with local marine conservation efforts. A team of scientists from the National Geographic Pristine Seas Initiative are surveying four of the Micronesian Nation's 29 atolls as part of their wider work in the Pacific. Moira Tulepatella has this report.
3: The Marshall Islands Marine Resources Authority's Brian Zebedee is working alongside the team from National Geographic. Zebedee says the re framework in the Marshall Islands uses data to help atoll communities. He says the information gathered from the surveys being carried out will now help communities even more with their protected areas. Collecting these information, especially in the you know, deep measure, deep sea, uh, all these deep, deep sea activities we're doing, it, it, it would mean a lot to have these on our profile, to see what we can create for our islands and for the culture and for the pe- people in the future. The expedition is a collaboration between Pristine Seas, the Nature Conservancy and the Marshall Islands Marine Resources Authority. Now into its second to last week, scientists have been surveying sea life in the Bikini Atoll and the neighbouring Rongelik Atoll, and two of the country's most remote and northernmost isles, Bikar and Boka, which are uninhabited. Pristine seas chief scientist Alan Friedlander says whenever the team arrives in a new place, sharing is
0: always a
3: priority
0: the overall goal of of this expedition is to help provide the marshall island government with information for their marine protected area network so we're at the just the two most remote atolls in the Marshall Islands.
3: At the beginning of the expedition, the team went to the community in the atoll of Utrecht and sought permission to visit two of the remotest islands. Friedlander says the Utrecht people are the stewards of the islands, and there's a belief if you don't get the proper permission from them, you will get lost or the weather will be bad. Bikini, which is one of the atolls the scientists will visit, was used by the U.S. as a detonation site for 23 nuclear bombs between 1946 and 1958. Friedlander says what they have found
0: so far is impressive. Just the abundance and diversity of large fish is is pretty unprecedented. we been diving all over the world and unfortunately places like this are extremely rare which makes it even more valuable to protect.
3: Zebedee, a marine scientist in his own right, says it's great to come back to this area and see how the marine life is thriving. So the last time uh, we were here, yeah we spotted many things and uh, we designated this place as as a shark haven and when we came back that's exactly how it is. From my perspective, it's exactly how a marine ecosystem is supposed to be like. As part of their ongoing five-year project, the National Geographic Pristine Seas team has so far this year visited the line islands of Kiribati, Tongareva in the Cook Islands, and Nuiere.
0: That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio podcasts from myself and the RNG Pacific team so far so far.